Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. Damien Garde is off today. It's Thursday, May 26th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Finally, some clarity on a timeline for COVID vaccines for the youngest kids. We talk with ER doctor and parent Dr. Jeremy Faust about how he's looking at the latest data. We'll start with a look at the biggest news from the week in biopharma. But first, a word about another podcast that you might like. At Tradeoffs, we like to get under healthcare's hood. There are just all these sort of leaky pipes across the healthcare system, which, if tightened, would lead you to save money. We dig into the numbers behind the policy. I will admit, I am a fangirl of the Congressional Budget Office. This <laughs> Who's not? Yes, they're amazing. When they drop their numbers, we all go running, right? Data, research, it all informs our journalism and the stories we tell. Healthcare, policy, people. Subscribe now to Tradeoffs. So this podcast comes out Thursday afternoons, and if you happen to listen to it the second that it comes out, then you still probably have a couple more hours before we have the big ASCO abstract drop. That is when thousands of data sets ahead of the world's largest cancer research conference come out all at the same time. That's at 5 p.m. Eastern. Typically, it's on the Wednesday, two weeks before the conference. This year, it's on a Thursday. Adam, are you anticipating major news? I think this year's ASCO is... Maybe kind of in the middle of the sort of excitement scale. There's not, there's not, there's no jaw dropping data that's going to be presented at this year's meeting. I, I think a lot of it is sort of incremental. Um, you know, with that said, though, like you said, you know, there, there, there are thousands of research abstracts that are that are being presented. So, you know, obviously there's a lot of important information, a lot of new data that will be at the meeting. Um, you know, tonight there will be some that comes out in the abstracts. But, you know, most of the stuff, I think, you know, the sort of the late breaker abstracts, which tend to be kind of some of the more practice changing abstracts, um, those are being withheld uh, from this from this big abstract drop uh, on Thursday. And so those will be uh, presented at the actual meeting itself in Chicago, which, by the way, we should mention is live. Uh, it's an in-person right, meeting. and you're going, right? I am going. So this is the first ASCO that will be in-person in two years. And I think that's really exciting. Um, you know, it's hard to cover these meetings uh, virtually. And I think it's also hard for people who attend these meetings to do it virtually. You know, we, you know, Meg, you and I tend to focus on, you know, kind of the biggest drugs in development. And we focus on the business side of things like the Wall Street side, the stocks. But, you know, for most people who go to this meeting, you know, what's important here is education, uh, learning about new cancer drugs, uh, new research. And then for people who are in the field, particularly, you know, people in kind of early stages of their scientific or research career, um, not having these meetings in person is really hard. Uh, you know, there's a lot of networking that goes on at these meetings. Um, there's a lot of just learning from, you know, interacting with people. And, you know, that you can't do that virtually. So I think, I think you know, the sense that I've got talking to people is that there is a, gen, a genuine excitement um, for, for everyone going back to Chicago for this meeting, you know, even with kind of this surge or mini surge, however you want to describe it, kind of rising COVID cases, I think people will have to be careful about that. But uh, generally, we're, we're all excited about going back to Chicago. I wish I could go. I am too pregnant to travel, <laughs> but I... I know. I'm going to miss you. I, I always I like... Know. I love when you're there and you set up and you have, you know, you're doing all the interviews that you do for CNBC. You know, I'm running around covering stuff. It's, it's. I mean, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a great meeting. You know, you've been there, you've done this, you're a veteran. Um, so we will miss you. 
We will have a setup. My wonderful producer will be there on site. We've got some really great interviews lined oh, great. up on, on the Monday of the conference, but I'll sadly be watching from my attic as I <laughs> do these interviews from my house. I'm too big to even get downstairs at this point. Um, in completely unrelated news, there was a really weird story that just came out this morning about a biotech founder who was arrested and charged with a murder-for-hire scheme. This is turning into a (laughs) true crime biotech podcast. Adam, fill us in. (laughs) Yes. Yes, we could turn this into a true crime uh, podcast. That would be fun. Um, Yeah, I don't don't know much more about this than what I've read briefly this morning. It it is bizarre. Um, The the person we were talking about, uh, the CEO, a co-founder of Enochian Biosciences, which is based in L.A., Uh, his his name is Sirhat Gumrachu. Uh, I'm probably uh, not pronouncing his name correctly, but apparently, yeah, he has been arrested on charges of this murder for hire scheme. The murder occurred back uh, back in 2018. There's a there's a couple of other people involved with this. One person who, in particular, was already previously charged uh, with the murder, and so maybe there's been new investigation, new leads that have come out of this thing, and 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 potentially this guy's involvement. You know, we don't. We, we we talk a lot about biotechs, both good and bad. Um, I don't know if we've ever had a biotech CEO um, accused of murder. Um, so that's kind of new. But hey, um, you know, 2022. Yeah, it's like the video game. Like, we're all living in a simulation and it's like <laughs> completely broken. Um, on to more familiar ground, Biogen. Oh, Did yes. you see the big note out from RBC with a bunch of different picks for potential CEOs? Yeah, this is like, this is fun, right? This is like, let's let's talk about who might be the CEO of Biogen. Uh, probably not, but it's fun to uh, speculate. Uh, I noticed that Jeremy Levin was on on this list. Uh, you had you had previously picked him <laughs> as as a potential uh, Biogen CEO. So at least somebody agrees with you. Yeah, well, that had to happen sometime. Um, <laughs> another person that I had suggested, though, Katrine Bosley, as you pointed out this morning, there was a story out that she had taken a role at a venture firm, so probably not going to take the Biogen job, right? Yeah, and we should probably mention the the note that we're talking about, the research note we're talking about is um, from Brian Abrahams. He's the biotech analyst at RBC Capital Markets. And so, yeah, he put out this note kind of just speculating on, on who might be uh, who might be picked to be the CEO. Um, he did pick, uh, one of the people he mentioned in here was um, Paul Clancy, who was a former Biogen CFO. We, we had actually mentioned him a couple episodes ago when we talked about talked about the same thing. You know, look, Brian doesn't have any idea who's going to be the CEO of Biogen, the next CEO of Biogen, nor do we, but uh, it's always fun to just uh, talk about this. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting. They put it in these different categories, CEOs who have sold companies. They mentioned the Vlad Korik, the former CEO of Biohaven, Amit Munshi, the former CEO of Arena, Ludwig Hansen, the former CEO of Alexion, Brent Saunders, former CEO of Allergan, and Habib Dable, former CEO of Acceleron. Yeah, the Brent Saunders one was a that's a head scratcher. I don't I don't really <laughs> see that one happening. We'll see. But hey, why not? Just throw him in the ring. You never know. And then they had this list of experienced biopharma executives, Bill Seibold from Sanofi, Ann White of Leila Lilly Neuroscience, and Bill Martin Jansen's neuroscience head. So that was interesting. And then there's the the biotech legends category, which had John Maraginori, uh, of course, as we all know, the former CEO of El Nylum, who now, um, you know, now is doing, I don't know, 
12 different jobs these days with various VCs and other things. And then and then Jeff Leiden, uh, the former CEO of Vertex, is on there. I got to say, Jeff Leiden is almost still the CEO of Vertex, from what I hear internally. The guy, like, oh, really? Is, yeah. You know, I think he's, he's had a hard time giving up that title. You know, he did give it up, but uh, he's still so heavily involved with Vertex. Uh, there, there's zero chance that he would ever leave uh the, the sort of the vertex sphere to uh, to to join Biogen. Hmm. Um, not a lot of diversity on this list. <laughs> oh yeah, um, oh, is there any at all? <laughs> I mean, there's some gender diversity, not very much. Yeah. It's yeah, but uh, you know, it, it reflects the makeup of the current executive pool of uh, the biopharma industry, which could use some work in the diversity department. So Meg, I've been gone for three days. Uh, my son graduated from college this week Yay! and I got to see him walk across stage, get his diploma. It was very exciting. We're very proud of him. Um, but what did I miss uh, from the sort of COVID uh, monkey pox sphere of our, of our world? While I was yeah. celebrating. <laughs> well, I hope you missed both COVID and monkeypox themselves. <laughs> so far, I um, have. <laughs> so in terms of monkeypox, you know, this this is obviously a very different pathogen than SARS-CoV-2. Um, the number of cases is still in the hundreds right now, but that is much bigger than we've ever seen outside the countries where it's endemic in Africa, as Helen Brainswell explained amazingly last week. Um, the focus, you know, a lot of the focus is on what are the interventions that we have. And because monkeypox is so related to smallpox, um, a lot of the, you know, the vaccines and the drugs that have been developed for smallpox can be applied to monkeypox as well. And in fact, a more recently approved uh, vaccine from Bavarian Nordic is approved by the FDA both for smallpox and monkeypox. And so there are questions about just how much of that vaccine exists. And I spoke with the Bavarian Nordic CEO this week, and he pointed out that the U.S. helped support the manufacturing and development of that vaccine and therefore has a lot more access to doses in the millions of doses than most other countries. He said Canada is also in a good position, but he said a lot of European countries have no doses at all. And so they've been getting orders. He said they've been inundated with calls from governments around the world trying to get access to this vaccine. And they're in the position on a sort of smaller scale, but a similar position to where Pfizer and Moderna's CEOs and all the CEOs of other vaccine companies were during COVID, getting these calls from governments and having to figure out how do you put them in line? How do you figure out who gets how much? Uh, all of that. And it's just... So, I mean, does that mean that we have a stockpile here in the U.S. of, of this we vaccine? We do. Yes. Mm. We have a stockpile of at least a million or so doses. It is a two-dose vaccine given four weeks apart. And then there's an older vaccine. So, Emergent Biosolutions makes smallpox vaccine called ACAM 2000. Uh, we do have a lot of that in the stockpile, but it's considered you know less appealing of a vaccine to use because it's a live virus vaccine. And there can be some side effects associated with it, particularly for people who are immunocompromised. So, the newer vaccine from Bavarian Nordic uh, is non-replicating and doesn't have those um, potential concerns. And lastly, Meg, what's going on with the Pfizer COVID drug Paxlovid? Yeah. So we talked about this weird Paxlovid rebound last week or the week before. This phenomenon where you know you get prescribed Paxlovid after you test positive for COVID. Pretty quickly, you feel better, you test negative, but then a few more days go by and your symptoms come back and you test positive again. And Pfizer said they saw this in the clinical trial in about 2% of people who took the drug. They also noted they saw it in about 1.5% of people who took the placebo. So there is an argument to be made. Is this just what happens with this virus or is it something about what the drug is doing? 
Um, this week, the CDC issued uh, a health alert, essentially, to let people know that this can happen. And we don't know, you know, how contagious people are if they test positive again. But from infectious disease doctors like Dr. Paul Sachs uh, at Brigham and Women's, who I've spoken with, the expectation is if you're testing positive again, you probably have enough virus that you're likely contagious. And so his advice is you should isolate. And that, that is what the CDC said as well. If you test positive again uh, with a Paxlovid rebound, you should isolate again, essentially restart that Um you know, this we, we are hearing about a lot of people talking about this happening. It's really hard to get a sense of how widespread it is, but it's it's starting to make people think about the drug and how it works and how best we should use it. And you really want to see the companies um, studying it. Do we need a longer course of treatment? What is making this happen? Um, what's the best way to use this drug? Because, you know, COVID is still out there in, in big ways. And this drug is being held up by the White House as a key solution to where we are right now. You know, I hate using Twitter as a barometer for anything, but you do sort of see more people talking about or experiencing this Paxlovid rebound um, and tweeting about it, you know, and obviously that's not really representative, um, but it does seem to have kind of come up. And uh, it, it have you spoken to Pfizer or has Pfizer said anything about what they plan to do about further studying this issue? Yeah, I've talked with them a couple times about this. Um, you know, they're sort of cagey about it. I mean, they note that they saw it in the trial, but they also note the placebo. Um, they are very quick to point out that it does not appear that the virus is becoming resistant. You know, the and, and that's something I've heard from infectious disease docs, too. There's no changes in the virus that have been observed that would suggest that is happening after a five-day course of treatment, you know, which would be really concerning because then you'd be sort of right. rotating yeah, into a sure. place where the drug might not be working a, as well. Um, but in terms of studying longer courses of treatment, they do have ongoing clinical trials in other patient populations. And so they're looking at that. They say they're studying all of this in the ongoing trials. Um, and the CDC said th these things should be reported to a, you know, a safety database that, that Pfizer maintains. And so you'd kind of hope we're getting a good sense of this, but you want to hear more about it and sort of more proactive discussion of it, I think. Monday morning, parents of young kids received the news many had hoped for at least six months ago. Pfizer and BioNTech's COVID-19 vaccine for children under five met the goals of a clinical trial, and the companies plan to file their application with the FDA this week. After months of delays and setbacks, there finally appears to be some clarity for a vaccine for this age group, the only one not yet eligible for COVID vaccination. With Moderna's application completed earlier this month, the FDA has now set a review date for both companies' vaccines for the youngest children, June 15th. And those vaccines are not identical. Moderna's is two doses of 25 micrograms each, a quarter of Moderna's adult dose. Its efficacy was between 37 and 51 percent in the trial against symptomatic COVID during Omicron. Pfizer and BioNTech's vaccine is three doses of three micrograms each, a tenth the adult dose. A preliminary efficacy figure based on only 10 cases seen in the trial was 80 percent, although that could change once more cases accrue. So how should parents look at these two potential options and vaccinating young kids against COVID in general? 
For that, we turn to Dr. Jeremy Faust, an emergency physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital, instructor at Harvard Medical School, and a dad of a kid under five who's sorting through all of this himself. He wrote about his thoughts on all of this in his newsletter called Inside Medicine. He joins us now. Dr. Faust, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Thanks for having me. So walk us through how you're looking at the available information on each of these vaccines and which one, if either, you might choose for your child. Well, I think the most important thing is that one of them be available as soon as possible. This has been quite a slog, and I don't need to say that as a physician. I just say that as a parent. So that's just the the most important thing. Do we have anything? And I hope to within a few weeks. In terms of deciding between Pfizer and Moderna, for me, it's really hard because I actually think that Moderna has a real advantage here, even though the readouts we have so far indicate that Pfizer would seem to have more efficacy against uh, symptomatic COVID. I'm not really swayed by that. I think that might be a short-term mirage and that in reality, they're probably both pretty similar. Given the differences in the vaccine, how do you weigh the potential differences there uh, in efficacy and maybe just administration? How do you think, you know, physicians are going to look at that versus parents are going to look at it? Well, one thing is, Timing, that's what's on my mind. We've been through so much for so long that the delayed gratification of a product like Pfizer that that could be a little better, but we're not even sure, just isn't there for me. So with Moderna, we would be able to get a first dose in and then a second dose 28 days later. And then basically the next week, you can assume that the child is protected against severe disease because of the immune bridging strategy, which is to say that the antibodies that the trials elicited suggest that protection. With Pfizer, we know that the first two doses, which would be also in a similar time frame, would not provide that. And then you'd have to wait two, three months until that third dose and and then another week after that. So for me, we've been through so much. I just want my kid to not end up in the hospital the way literally, what is it, 100,000 kids, 125,000 children in this country have been hospitalized either for or with COVID. I am not interested in adding any more to that. So for me, the immediate sort of gratification of having it done within a month as opposed to two or three months is holding us away. Other people might love that early number that Meg mentioned, the 80% number from Pfizer and say, well, I'm willing to wait two or three months. My hesitation there is that maybe a third dose of Moderna is coming around the on the pipeline and would equally do that as well. So that's why I'm sort of leaning Moderna, but we'll see what happens as the data come out. Yeah. And hopefully we'll have more by the time of the the VERPAC, the the advisory committee meeting June 15th. I guess we'll see what data are available by then from both companies. In terms of the third dose, I've heard a lot of talk about that from Moderna. When they reported their results, they said they were designing a study to evaluate a booster in kids under the age of six. So I'm just... Given the timelines that we've had so far, I just don't have a lot of optimism that will be anytime soon, but I also don't know. So I'm very much looking forward to the verb pack and hearing what people have to say. But um, Jeremy, based on you know also the safety and tolerability of these vaccines, they might have different profiles, right? Um, how do you weigh what you know about them so far against the fact that a lot of people will point out young kids have much lower risks of bad outcomes from COVID than adults? Well, one thing is that you mentioned up top, the dosing differences for this particular age group. It really is a lot less. What, it's a quarter for Moderna, a tenth for, for Pfizer of the adult dose. And when you look at the, the outcomes that have really made the headlines, that's this myocarditis after the vaccine, which is real but rare, that really occurred mostly in kind of young males, 12 and up, 15, 16-year-old males, 25, 30. We're talking about 
teenage, adolescent, and young adult males had this who, who were basically getting the full adult dose, the same as anyone. And then you look at the younger kids, the 5 to 11s, and then this group under 5 or under 6 in the case of Moderna. And these are really micro doses by comparison. And I think that's why for the 5 to 11-year-olds, for example, in the Pfizer side of things, we haven't seen those rates because quite frankly, the, the 5 to 11-year-olds got a smaller dose and it works, but Honestly, that third dose for the 5 to 11-year-olds really looks like is probably important on the grounds of efficacy. And we also know that from, from Israel and other studies that spacing out the vaccine um, in terms of myocarditis um, is another, another way to make it even more rare. The only place I've really seen even a scintilla of a problem is in a group who got the full adult dose who might be on the little bit on the lower side of um, the male age, um, adult, adult to male age uh, group. So for the kids, the little ones, I have yet to see anything concerning. And on the aspect of do they really need it, sort of people were in my in my social media feeds, uh, as I was saying, look, we finally have something safe and effective. And then the, the trolls were out there saying, well, yeah, but is it necessary? And And to me, it is because I've been looking very closely at the data for two years now. And I see over and over again the downplaying of this virus for kids, which leads to the fact that you, you ha you've had 125,000 kids hospitalized. And look, maybe half of those are incidental. That's still a, a really high amount. That's on a population level, one in a thousand kids, even if, a, even if a bunch of these hospitalizations were sort of incidental. But otherwise, one in 580 kids or something like that has been hospitalized in the country. That's not, you know, for infection. That's in the country. And that to me tells me this is serious. Then you've got this awful uh, my, um, multi-inflammatory syndrome in children, which has hospitalized thousands and killed some kids. So for me, this virus is one of the worst things I've ever seen for a kid. And I'm looking forward to getting my kid absolutely protected from those numbers. There's been a lot of debate and, and outrage uh, from some parents over the timing of all this. You know, there have been many delays in the clinical trials and the FDA reviews. Uh, you know, more recently, I think there was a suggestion that the FDA would hold back its review of Moderna's vaccine so that it could simultaneously evaluate Pfizer's. This frustrated uh, many parents who just wanted any good option as quickly as possible. What's your take on all that? It looks bad, right? They claim that they did not do that, that they didn't, that the FDA did not hold anything back to wait for Pfizer. But in reality, the, the timing between Moderna's first readout of their data was back in March. Here we are almost in June before a Burbank meeting is going to happen. I am led to believe that some of this was administrative mistake or administrative not incompetence, but inefficiencies over at Moderna and that they're new at this. I've heard some of that and maybe your reporting has bared that out as well. But it's that's not the whole story. It, it just it seems a little too perfect, right? That there was the sense that they'd wait and they that it was longer than it usually would be the interval between the, the sort of press release readout and the and the FDA Burpack meetings. And then, oh, lo and behold, late late May, a uh, Pfizer shows up to the to the party. So I think that there is that it's it's going to be hard for parents like me, like me to look at the whole timeline and and think that it was just completely random that that ha they happened to both line up for the same meeting. So I think that's that's disappointing. I think the larger point though is how we treat kids in general in in these situations and and also pregnant women, pregnant patients who have been excluded from these trials. A lot of 
these clinical trials exclude kids in the first go round, and and COVID's a an international emergency, and having a trial that maybe has the kids on a slightly slower track at first makes some sense. But here we are now. And it was November 2020 when we had phase three data for adults. And now it's almost June 2022. And we're just now getting data on pediatric vaccines that's literally the same product. It's just a smaller dose. That seems to me untenable. And in the future, I would hope that we would get the better information more quickly by including kids in the trials, by including at-risk populations like pregnant women, because there's a lot of misinformation out there that high-quality clinical data, clinical trial data, does answer. And do you mind my asking, like, just on a personal level, as a parent of a kid under five, like, how have you and your family just navigated all of this, you know, just thinking about their safety versus wanting to just give them a normal life. I mean, how do you do that when you're like the last group that doesn't have access to a vaccine? We've been careful. We've been lucky, but we have not been at the extreme, but we've really picked our spots. So our child, our four-year-old, has been going to preschool since uh, the fall, really, of twenty of 2020. And they did weekly testing at first, and then they did weekly testing followed by rapids halfway through. They took this very seriously. They did masks all the time for kids over the age of two. Then eventually they dropped the masks outdoors. They still do masks indoors. And they there have been there have been cases in in, in the school in her classroom. Um, we've been lucky. The we we have let her join us, and we've been happy to have her join us on trips across the country to see her grandparents. And you know she masks for five hours on the plane, and she's good about it. But we have not done things like take her to something indoors, like indoor dining. At one point last summer when she was three, she said, I want to go to a restaurant someday. And we were like, oh, gosh. Oh, geez. Oh, okay. Someday. Oh. <laughs> it was so sad. And so we were just like, okay, fine. Wait a minute. There's like an outdoor restaurant <laughs> that serves like amazing tacos nearby. Like we literally took her out to dinner like the next weekend outdoors. And it was fine. Like, And so we just sort of pick our spots. And we ourselves don't do a lot of indoor dieting just to protect her. And we, we never we only pulled her out of school for one week, or uh, which was the peak of Omicron, when I did the math and realized that it was just just statistically almost impossible to justify sending her to school for, for seven days. As I as I as a lot of parents just know, it's just a matter of picking what matters. So we've been doing some stuff and not others, but the second she's vaccinated, it'll be the, the Children's Museum probably, and it'll be music lessons with a teacher who hasn't taken a rapid test. And other than that, though, we've been doing a lot of rapid testing for people who come in the home. So Jeremy, I wanted to ask you just a more general question about COVID. Uh, you know, uh, the Northeast has been going through kind of a, a surge in COVID cases these days. The whole country is, but it's been particularly noteworthy here in the Northeast. What does that look like at the Brigham these days? Have you noticed it? You can always sort of feel it um, in, in the sense of a wave because, quite frankly, we test so many people in the emergency department, even if they're being discharged. And you can also tell literally just based on like who's calling out sick. Like how many how many healthcare workers are calling out sick, and like Omicron was just like oh my goodness, everyone's got it. This period of time has not felt anything like Omicron or even late Delta, so we were fortunate in the sense that in here in Massachusetts and, and here in these counties where I work, the the vaccination rate is extremely high, the booster rate's high in, in older adults, 
And right now in Massachusetts, we really don't have excess mortality, which is more deaths than usual from all causes. And during the pandemic, we've had excess mortality during the waves that have obviously been COVID. But the, the, the purest read of excess mortality is to not say why they're dying, just to say, look, more people are dying than usual. And right now in Massachusetts, we don't have that very much. We have a slight, slight amount, maybe, and it's really just noise. Whereas in Omicron, it was just devastating and Delta got bad at the end. So on this systemic level in Massachusetts, it if you sort of uh, drop the needle and press play at this part of the story, you wouldn't say, oh my goodness, they're really in the middle of a global pandemic, aren't they? You wouldn't, you wouldn't really see that. Whereas a month or two ago, you would have. Whereas in parts of this country, you still do. The, the, what's always harder to see is, is outside of the critical, act, the critical care part, outside of the ER, outside of these numbers like deaths and hospitalizations, which are your worst outcomes. How are things going in terms of people just getting sick, missing work, having longer COVID, long COVID? That's harder for me to see, but um, I suspect that that's uh, still, still a major problem. So, Jeremy, I mean, where do you land on the the seasonality question of all of this and the idea that we might be in for another gigantic fall-winter wave? I mean, obviously, you can't predict what kinds of variants might come along, but how do you just kind of look at the year ahead? I think that there is a seasonality to this. I, I don't think that this is a virus that goes away in the summer because it's just too contagious, uh, unlike other viruses that we've, we've, we've lived with. But it's, I think we live now through two and a half winters with with COVID. And by far the worst peaks were January both times around. And in fact, the 2021 peak was so bad that as things got better in February and March of 2021, it almost looked like it was just the vaccine doing everything. And I think the, the spring of 2021, where we really had in a lot of parts of the country a lot less disease was this sort of combination of, oh, the bad season's over and the population's extremely immune, mostly from vaccination, but a little bit from infection too. And as we move forward, yearly vaccinations are, will probably be a good strategy. I, I think that that's part of, the, of what FDA is looking at now. So I tend to think that the sea level for this is going to be uh, not zero in the summer, but the but the waves the worst waves will come in the fall and winter and I think that's a time to to look at sort of spending your clout you're spending your your um, opportunity to to boost I, I think that boosting in like May uh, may make a lot less sense than boosting in October or November that kind of a thing I got boosted in April double boosted in April maybe I should just get boosted again and <laughs> no but I'm like you know because it, it was getting you know the infections were going up and I I had a bunch of travel and things that I needed to do and so I just went and got double boosted or the second booster. So I don't know. Maybe I'll get it again. <laughs> well, I think that I think that. Well, one thing you said makes a lot of sense. People are always, are always asking me about the fourth dose, and one thing I I say is, well, when do you want to be protected? Yeah. If you have a lot of travel coming up or a graduation or a wedding, and you really just want to spend your one time, you know, I mean, it's not really your one time, but you want to spend that sort of that, that um you use that protection time that the, the that the fourth dose would might add. Um, makes sense, right? I was actually talking to you know, some White House officials about this question about, you know, shouldn't you guys be telling people like not to boost right now in some cases? Like like Brigham, my hospital, made me boost. Like I hadn't been boosted because I was sort of a, a little bit of a booster nihilist when it came to like younger, healthier people. 
who didn't have necessarily anyone they're worried about infecting. I actually thought You're that- You're the Paul Offit camp. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I mean, Paul and I see almost virtually eye to eye on this question. And uh, and I still think to this day that um, that boosters um, decrease infection for somebody in my age group and younger, um, but they don't actually change outcomes beyond the, the, the fantastic outcome of the first two doses. So um, anyway, I didn't do it. I was waiting for Israel's data. Israel's data comes out and, and even some of ours looked okay uh, and on, the, on the question of side effects. And I just decided I wasn't going to get fired over that. So Brigham said, okay, you have to get, va- you have to get boosted by March 1st. And I was thinking, you should be prohibiting me from getting boosted right now. It's a waste. Yeah. Like you should say, all right, Faust, you, uh, you didn't get boosted this time around. <laughs> but the second there's a wave, you're going to have to get boosted or else you're going to be fired. And I would have been like, all right, fine, I get it. So that it's, I think that we, unfortunately, it's hard to, to tell the country to time things because that just doesn't work. So I get the, I get the sort of public health message like, all right, there's a booster available. Y'all go get it. Um, but on a person to person basis, when people, Adam, if you'd come to me and you'd said, Hey, should I get a fourth dose right now? And uh, my next question would have been, well, when do you want to be protected? I guess the downside is now that I, now I worry is that, you know, as we get into the fall and, you know, maybe the winter and where my immunity starts to wane and other people are going to get boosted. So, <laughs> well, this is actually a way then. of looking at it. You know, <laughs> when is your most recent immune generating event? Right. When was your most recent infection? When was your most recent booster? And yeah. those, and that's a question that you might want to think about for this. We didn't cover it, but like, but Pfizer, I think I'm Moderna too, but Pfizer's looking at the question of like, how did the kids do in with the third dose who've already been infected? So there's this, mm-hmm. and, and hybrid immunity is super powerful. So th- there, there are all these questions of like, wait, when are you really at risk? And one of the reasons why I, I'm not sure you saw, but I have this paper in, in, in JAMA this last week um, about excess mortality in Massachusetts. Yeah, that got a lot of attention. Yeah. And like one of the things that people don't realize is like one of the reasons that Omicron was worse for us than Delta was, was that we did well with Delta. We kind of held the line on Delta. And so we're, so in a way, we had like more people at risk because they we hadn't had a, a million infections. So by the time Omicron runs comes comes on, there, those million people um, who, if they lived say in like Florida, um, would have antibodies and and wouldn't have had as bad of Omicron. So at some t- at some point, it's infections inevitable. Um, but the question is, what are the outcomes of those infections? Can you flatten those curves so that you don't have them all at once? So that you know I can do my job at the ER and actually not have to choose between like which patient gets my attention and that sort of thing. So Jeremy, thanks for joining us. Yeah, really happy to be here. Thanks for uh, the conversation. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Abinado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you're heading to ASCO this year. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. 